Father, I pray that you will help me to speak words that glorify you and point to your son, Jesus, that we all might have life in his name. Amen. I once told a a joke, a a wedding blessing I did for a man of a Jewish background and a lady of Anglican background. And, And the joke was about a rabbi and a priest who decided to do a car share together. They purchased a new Peugeot together, and um, they were trying to work out how do we celebrate the fact we've got a new car. And the priest, as was his custom, got some holy water and uh, splashed it over the car, uh, um, praising uh, God the Father, God the Son, uh, God the Holy Spirit, and the Blessed Virgin for uh, the new car that he had and celebrating it. And then the rabbi uh, went to his toolkit and got out his hacksaw and started to approach the exhaust pipe. <laughs> uh, to, to, to <laughs> there you are, one, one person's going. <laughs> it's, um, and it, it went down fairly well at the, uh, the wedding. But it, it brought to my mind just how distinct often today um, a Jewish identity has become from a Christian identity. And this passage that we're in, begins to suggest some of the the reasons for that divergence. Because if you go to a British art gallery and you look at the medieval pictures of Jesus and so forth, you could be forgiven for thinking that he'd never been anywhere near Israel (laughs) in his life. He's an Aryan, a blonde, blue-eyed Aryan, rather than the Semitic character that he almost certainly was. And we've allowed, even in, through art, this sort of gap to, to emerge between the Jewish Jesus and, and this sort of conception that we have of him, and between Judaism and our current experience of Christianity. And this, this passage, in fact, this passage in its context, begins to explain some of the separation that happens. Um, and it, it asks the question, how would the Jewish leaders respond to the Jewish Messiah, who came in a different way to the one they expected him to come. This section in Luke's Gospel includes what was preached on last week. It begins in 5 verse 12, and it runs through to the end of our passage in 6 verse 11. And it's all about six conflicts that occur between Jesus and the religious leaders. How are you with conflict? Anyone like conflict here? It's not something you necessarily angle towards. And and when you're thinking of Jesus, you might imagine that the baby that we sing about in a way in a manger is is the character of Jesus, this sort of um, meek and mild, gentle character. But in fact, as we look into Luke's gospel, we, we find out that he's anything but mild and anything but uncontroversial or unconfrontational. And so we've, we're coming to the fifth and sixth of six conflicts. Let me just run through what they are. If you're following on page 1032, you'll be able to see what I'm saying. The first conflict was when Jesus encounters a man with leprosy, and he touched him, thus making himself unclean in Jewish law. But he's prepared to do it, and... Um, and, and that begins to provoke a reaction from the religious leaders. And then, as uh, Tom was talking about last week, he interacts with the uh, Pharisees and he tells a man who's paralyzed that his sins are forgiven. So he's touched a leper, um, making himself ceremonially unclean, and he's claimed to have authority to forgive sins. It's, it's not a good sell if you're trying to make friends and influence people in the Jewish world. It's saying, 
I'm on the level of God. I'm above you. I can forgive your sins. You see how he's ranking up the controversy. The next thing he goes and and finds a man who has spent all his life um, collecting money from Jews to give to Romans. It's a bit like sending a member of the Tory party up to Edinburgh or to Glasgow and saying, could you send more income tax down to London, please? That sort of character. And yet Jesus goes and sits with him and in fact calls him to be one of his core 12 disciples. It annoys the Jewish leaders. Then there's the thing about him fasting and why his disciples don't fast in the way that the Pharisees do. And in his answer to that, he suggests that the Pharisees are old hat past it and he's got something new coming along. And again, that's not the best way of making friends with someone, is it? It's like the way you've done things all through your life, that's, that's the old way and I've got a new way now. And you can imagine some of these people, probably 20, 30 years older than Jesus, very upset with this 30-year-old, <laughs> with his newfangled ideas and arrogance in their view. And then we have the fifth and sixth confrontations, and these are all about Sabbath. Now, we don't do Sabbath much in our culture, do we now? Um, I imagine some will remember all those campaigns about keeping Sunday special. Uh, our, our nod to keeping Sunday special is that the supermarket is only open for six hours. <laughs> Uh, that's, about, that's about it now, isn't it, in keeping Sunday special. But back in this culture, um, some of you may be able to rewind to days where you remember something similar in our country. Everything stopped on the Sabbath. From Friday night at 6 p.m. to Saturday night at 6 p.m., you just didn't do anything. You didn't do cooking. You didn't do preparing. If your animal fell down at a well, it was debatable whether you could even go and rescue the animal. <laughs> People were very upset if you did what was seen as work. And the definition of what work was, was up for grabs. And there was a certain definition you might say was the universal definition. But then there were a group of people trying to extend that definition to its absolute limit. And our first section, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 6, we get a view of this. And all that's happened is Jesus' disciples are walking through this beautiful cornfield. And being hungry, they pick up a few bits of grain, (laughs) rub them together, and just start eating it. It's not exactly preparing a full-scale meal, is it? It's not going to be served up in in, in one of our top restaurants on Chiswick High Road. (laughs) They've just sort of done a little bit of gleaning. Um, But the, the Pharisees see this as harvesting, and they say it's unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, what you need to note about this, firstly, is it's not actually unlawful in uh, the books of the Bible. This is in their extra interpretation that it's unlawful. But they, they say that this is harvesting, whereas you might say, actually, this is gleaning. So how does Jesus respond to them? How would you respond to, to someone if they come up to you and say, um, you know, you're, you're not obeying the law, your people are letting us down, the standards have slipped since you've been around <laughs> I imagine face-to-face with that level of uh, head-on confrontation, many of us would do the flight-or-fight thing, wouldn't we? Is that, is that not fair? That's, that's our normal reaction. We, we either just slip away, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. I'll tell them off. I'll give them a reprimand. And you go and say, look, please, guys, don't do this now. I know it's all right, really, but don't worry. We don't want to upset people. Or you go, oh, we can do whatever we like. 
Uh, I'm right, you're wrong. You, and have a an, debate about gleaning versus harvesting. <laughs> and then you have like a, how many, how many do you have to pick up before it's harvesting? <laughs> that, that would be two very normal reactions that people might have, fight or flight. Jesus does something very different. He takes them into the scriptures, which is always a good thing. And in verses 3 and 4, he reminds them of a story that comes in 2 Chronicles 30 about one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, the King David. And when he and his companions were hungry, when he was on a particular mission, errand from God, um, he enters into the house of God, took consecrated bread and ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he gave some to the companions. Now, what's really interesting about choosing this example is that that actually was illegal, (laughs) what David did. It breaks uh, Leviticus 24 verse 9. David actually did break the ceremonial law, and yet he's not condemned for it in Scripture, nor by Jesus. And this is a very interesting thing for us as we try and work out how we should live our lives practically day to day. David broke the ceremonial law as he was serving God and needed to, Note it wasn't a moral law that he broke. Uh, he, he wasn't above the code of moral laws, was he? Do you remember when he arranged for someone to be killed and um, when he committed adultery? God sent a prophet along who confronted him and told him a parable about a man who uh, wanted to sacrifice a sheep. And instead of sacrificing the sheep at the party, uh, for, for this party and for an offering to God, um, of, of his own large, extensive flock, he sacrificed this precious lamb of a poor man. <laughs> and, uh, and David hears the parable and says, oh, that man's terrible, he's awful. And the prophet Nathan says, well, that man is you. <laughs> so King David isn't above the moral law, and when he breaks the moral law, he's confronted for it. But when, in doing something good, he breaks this ceremonial law, He shows that he is, in this case, above a mere ceremonial code. And this is Jesus' point. That the code is there for our sake. (laughs) To help us. It's not there to control us utterly. And he he concludes by saying, not totally, this is a bit of a non sequitur, but that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. If David can be in charge of what he does on the Sabbath... How much more me? So notice he is again placing himself above King David. He's saying, look, I, I can break the Sabbath. I'm the son of man. And if David can break it for, for those reasons, so can I. Now, there are seven occasions in the gospel where we have a recording of Jesus having a fight with Pharisees about the Sabbath. This is a big deal. And Luke puts two of them together. Actually, in between these two, we think that there is the encounter in John chapter 5 where he heals um, the man at the pool of Siloam, who is a paralyzed man. And after these two, there's a time where Jesus talks about the Pharisees' practice of circumcising on the Sabbath uh, and heals a man born blind, and um, both in John's gospel. And then later on in Luke, we'll find he, uh, he heals a bent-over woman and a man with dropsy, both again on the Sabbath, both very deliberately, Uh, really saying, look, I can do this on a Sabbath if I want to. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. But Luke puts these two together here to really make a point for us at the end of these six reasons why Jesus and the Pharisees are separating ways. And he says, look, there was this time 
where a man um, came and his hand was shriveled. Notice what Jesus was doing. He was, he was teaching. He wasn't just wandering around looking for someone to heal. He was doing his, his day job, effectively, of teaching the kingdom of God to people. And a man comes in, and the Pharisees are just trying to catch Jesus out in any way they can. They're watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, we don't know if Jesus was intending to heal this man at all. But because he knew what the Pharisees were thinking, uh, as, as you look at the text, is it because he knew what they were thinking, he, he calls the man out as a visual aid. <laughs> he calls him out as a visual aid and says, come on, come and stand in front of everyone. Uh, and uh, Jesus doesn't heal him at that point. He makes a teaching point first. It's not just about the healing. See how the healing often works to emphasize what Jesus is doing in his mission and in his teaching? It's not just healing for healing's sake in the gospel, often. And he makes this extraordinary, telling question. Which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or destroy it? (laughs) Now, how do you answer that question? It's, it's It's an easier question than the Scottish referendum question, isn't it? Um, uh, it's sort of like, duh, um, I think saving life sounds good, um, and I think uh, doing good sounds good. But the reason it's such a clever question is the Pharisees can't answer this. <laughs> if they answer this question, they are effectively going to give him permission to heal on the Sabbath. They're going to admit to themselves and to others that what Jesus is about to do is right. And Jesus looks round at all of them, as he often does in the Gospels. He just looks round. I, I guess in that sort of way that you can gaze into someone's soul. Have you ever had that encounter with someone who seems wise and profound, and they, they look at you in the eyes, and you sort of got a sense that they know you right to the inner core? I try and do that in supervisions. <laughs> uh, they look them in the eye and, and knows them. And, um, and then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And of course, his hands restored immediately and miraculously. What are the Pharisees? Do they admit that they were wrong? Do they praise God? No, they they go away um, furious. They go away furious. The the word anoia means senseless rage. They go away in a senseless rage with Jesus. Someone said this, he humiliated, this is Jesus, humiliated the religious leaders and healed the man all at the same time. It is no wonder the religious establishment were furious and sought a way to get rid of him. Gentle Jesus. Now this is two years before Jesus goes to the cross. Two years it's going to have a, a rocky road over the next two years. This, this story comes in both Matthew and Mark. And at the end of this story in Matthew and Mark, they record that the, uh, that the Pharisees and others engage in a plot to get rid of Jesus. Uh, in one of those particular plots, they take him to the edge of a cliff and try and throw him off. And he just walks through the midst of them because it wasn't his time yet. They couldn't do anything to him because in God's sovereignty it wasn't his time to die. He just walks past them. They engage in the plot to get rid of him. But Luke doesn't take us there. And it's just worth interesting to note. On the one hand, you know, Mark and Matthew, they're trying to explain the reason that Jesus got killed. In Luke, he just wants us to gaze in wonder at the authority that Jesus has 
over his enemies. Just to dwell on that for a moment. What an extraordinary guy. What an extraordinary way of responding to people. If you've done what I've done in the last few days and turned Radio 4 on and listened to politicians talking about Scotland, you'll notice how rarely they say anything, although they use lots of words. And yet Jesus, in tiny words, says things that cut right through to the heart of the situation. And we're left gazing in wonder at the questions he asks them, at the way he speaks to people, and at the way that he's not trying to please anyone. (laughs) He's just doing the work that's right. Thankfully, he set us free from the harsher rules of Pharisaical religion. And that's the God we serve today. I'll leave you to draw your own applications in terms of how you live your life. Um, It's a good check to make sure we're not being Pharisees. But I think the main thing this passage is asking us to do is say, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is this man? What an extraordinary character he is. And then Luke's going to take us on a journey where he's going to encourage us to worship this man who is also God. And that's what we come to as we come to communion. We, we lift Jesus high and we praise his father for sending him. Lydia's going to come and take us into the creed.